go. Okay. Oh, perfect. How how does this sound? So I can also try it on my Bluetooth headphones. I just don't know. Sounds excellent. Sounds good now. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to see you. You as well. It's been a while. Yes. So uh, thanks for joining us for the podcast. We really appreciate it. So we usually just um, spend about a half an hour talking to folks about little things that make a difference in the educational world. And I know you've got a lot of experience addressing issues of equity in our system. So why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so so my, my background in education, uh, I'll talk about education and also equity. So um, really begin on the media side. And so I, I joined a company called School Improvement Network. And my focus was actually on media, on going into classrooms and filming excellent teachers and what they do. And so it was, you know, I did not enter the classroom or I did not enter education through the classroom, through teaching, et cetera. I entered education through um, filming over 20 years in about 3,000 different classrooms. So every, you know, every state, most of the provinces in Canada, several other countries, um, it was a fascinating experience. I mean, I felt much more, uh, you know, (laughs) at times like a, you know, a researcher, a sociologist, um, someone even called me a, a cultural archaeologist at one point because we were really going in and observing these schools, both the schools in terms of the leadership, but also the classroom in terms of the teacher practice and identifying what are those practices that exist um, that ultimately connect all students to the learning. And yeah. so that was my intro into education. As part of this program, my intro into um, race and equity was we, we did a program at one point featuring Glenn Singleton. And Glenn Singleton um, originated the concept of courageous conversations about race. And so I, it, you know, so I was pulled into this, flew to Oakland, filmed a workshop, had never heard anyone talk about race quite like Glenn had. And, and it, was, it, was, um, it was both eye-opening and earth-shattering all at the same time. And this was in 2001, so this was several years before Obama, before our nation started to get a little more conscious and open about issues of race. And so it was particularly um, earth-shattering for a a white guy who grew up in Sandy, Utah, um, and believed in his own, you know, acceptance and inclusivity of everybody. I was even living in uh, Koreatown in Los Angeles at the time, having what I called my cultural experience. Um, so to be thrust into a very honest conversation about race, I, uh, forced me to reconsider myself, unlike almost anything I'd ever gone through. Wow. Yeah. So, and then you ended up writing a book with Glenn, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so we filmed that program and, um, let me actually share a little story around it. And this is, Please. You know, so, so I filmed a two day workshop in Oakland. We went to Denver done another two-day workshop. So by this point, I've spent, you know, um, four eight-hour days watching Glenn interact with the audience, hearing the audience's responses. We then went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and filmed yet again another two-day workshop. So I had a, a, a fast, um, you know, dunk into courageous conversations about race. And so after our first day in Chapel Hill, we went to a little restaurant, and it's fascinating. I mean, this is 
19 years ago. And Glenn and I both remember this experience quite clearly. And um, we're sitting in this restaurant called Crook's Corner, and I'm having my first plate of shrimp and grits. <laughs> you know, marvelous, Crook's Corner is known for it. You know, I have a whole theory around how food um, activates the rest of the senses and so intensifies the conversation you're having with someone. Um, so there Glenn and I are sharing a dinner of shrimp and grits. We're outside on the patio. We know where the sun is setting. We know how warm it is. And we're talking through these issues. And I had this light bulb moment come on. And, and, and you know, what I'm about to share is so simple, it's obvious. But this is you know, part of the challenge of the work in race and equity is that the only story we actually know is our own. And so as we move into trying to understand the experience of other people, we have to go through those light bulb moments of incredibly simple um, discoveries in order to really understand it. And so there we are. And, and one of the things that I had connected myself with to what Glenn was talking about in terms of um, being different and being othered, you know, particularly in academic and professional settings, was my own Mormon upbringing. And so living outside of Utah, working outside of Utah, um, you know, in Los Angeles, I had a lot of consciousness around this Mormon heritage and how people misunderstood it. You know, even in graduate school, there was one of my colleagues who, um, who literally asked me, okay, so your one wife came down with you to LA, did your other wife stay back in Utah? And it wasn't a joke, she actually thought that was the case. So I'm carrying those personal stories about being othered because of my heritage, my identity. And so that's how I was, uh, I was um, you know, processing this whole honest conversation about race. So there Glenn and I are sitting again with the shrimp and grits and the sun is setting. And I'm like, oh, oh, Oh my gosh. Okay, okay. So Glenn, the difference is when I walk in the room, I have to announce my Mormon heritage in order to invite prejudice against my background. But when you enter the room and he looks at me and goes, yes. And one thing I didn't say is Glenn's black. He's a black educator from the Bay Area. He goes, yes, that's it. And so, so simple, right? absolutely simple. But for me, I had never considered that the, the presence of racial difference, and, and now let's go into a bit of brain theory, you know, your, your brain research around this. So the visual part of your brain processes information at about a thousand frames per second. So the moment I see somebody, my mind is racing through and trying to take that image of another person and connect it to some sort of understanding. The brain's always searching for understanding. So if mm -hmm. I see someone, if I see Glenn who is black, within a thousandth of a second, his image is now attached to whatever I think about black people. Now, auditory information processes at about the speed of talking. So even though Glenn and I are talking and, you know, and let me use an incredibly old racist trope, he's articulate and educated and confidence and all these other things. The problem is, you know, in the first thousandth of a second, I've already landed judgments on him. Mm. And that's why race, you know, leads to racism and racism is so insidious because our mind is rendering judgments based on a person's 
visual image rather than on who they actually are. Mm -hmm. but it takes too long for the mind to process who this person might be. I've already landed in my judgments. Mm. And then that pushes my interpretation of this other person, no matter how smart they may be, how accomplished they, they may be, how sincere and generous and honest, and let's go all the, you know, how much grit they have, how much perseverance they have. Every single time I'm analyzing this other person, it is literally colored by the color of their skin. Because the judgment mm -hmm. in my mind has already been rendered. Yeah. So how do you work around that, especially when you're working with teachers who um, are very well-meaning, who, um, you know, there's a book Robin D'Angelo wrote called White Fragility that talks about um, how hard it is for white teachers to have conversations because any suggestion of racism or uh, privilege is met with, you know, not me. I mean, I'm a nice person. I care about kids. Right. I you know, I mean well. And um, then what often happens is that those individuals uh, can sometimes co-opt the conversation because it then becomes about making them feel better. No, 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 right. you're not a racist. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we understand you're a good person. And so then all of a sudden the focus has been taken away from the issues of race and racism that we started out with and now is about making this person feel like they're okay. I mean, that's, that's Robin DiAngelo's yeah. story in White Fragility. How have, you approached, um, how have you approached this as a white person talking to white teachers? Yes. So, so, um, so I'm going to go very personal on you. And, and, you know, and Jim, you, you've participated in some of my workshops in the past, but, but I tend to think about particularly educational equity within a personal, professional, and institutional lens. So the personal, who am I? The professional, what do I do? The institutional, who are we? And one reason why I break it apart that way is because it's too easy for teachers to say, oh, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, as been said so many times, probably was said in one of the workshops we did back in the, you know, the, what, 2007, 2008, you know, mm -hmm. you're preaching to the choir. You got to talk to the school board. Oh, you got to talk to the legislature. You're preaching to the choir. Well, if I'm preaching to the choir based upon this school district's performance, the choir doesn't sound that good. <laughs> so, so let's actually break this apart so that we're going to tackle, you know, elements of equity and, you know, the, the really embracing equity. And, and I want to talk about the evidence side of equity in a bit because, because equity and, and anti-racism get woven together, but it's different work that has to occur for both of them. So on the racism side, from the personal, who am I? The first piece is that racism is an addiction. You know, and the reason it's an addiction is because when we can quickly render a judgment on someone else, it feels very self-validating. And so I can't ever conquer my inner racism, ever. It will always be there. I mean, to this day, I have to check myself. I mean, and, and, and if I'm honest about it, there are some scary, scary judgments that I render in deep internally that I'll never admit to anybody. But man, those thoughts are passing through my mind. Through my mind. So if racism is an addiction, the reason the fragility is there is because we're challenging someone's addiction. 
And mm -hmm. quite frankly, none of us like our addictions being challenged. Mm. You know, no, I had a really hard day. I deserve that cookie. <laughs> you know, I no, I mean, it's like, it's like, I, I just need this drink to bring the edge down. That's all. Um, so if it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, finish up. So, so that's the first thing I have to acknowledge is that, is that I will never fundamentally conquer my racism. So then how do I deal with it? And so here's the personal story around this. Um, you know, I, I adopted both my children. Both my children are African-American, they're black. And so, you know, my wife and I, we went through years of infertility. Um, you know, we, pregnancy could not be accomplished. We finally realized we were more interested in being parents than we were in achieving a pregnancy. So we entered into the world of adoption. The fascinating thing about the world of adoption, and you know, and we're talking here in Utah, Utah leads the nation in transracial adoption. So more white families adopting children of color here in Utah than any other state per capita. And, and actually it's per capita and it's actually in real numbers as well. Oh wow, that's an interesting statistic. That is interesting. Yes, and, and there's some fascinating things about Utah culture and Mormon culture and whatnot that leads to this. And, and my wife and I experienced this. And so there you are in the adoption agency and you have to fill out a profile saying, we're willing to accept this and we are not willing to accept this. And one of those is it lays out race. It says, are you willing to adopt you know, a full African-American child, a half African-American child, full Latino, a half, you know, and, and and it feels so guilty to mark anything less than, yes, we're willing to accept it. And so, you know, and, and we worked, um, part of the work we do is, is with the Domino Foundation, which my wife and I started. And, and the whole purpose of the Domino Foundation is to support transracial adoption families with education and social engagement. So we've had a lot of conversation with parents over the years around transracial adoption and why they entered into this. And so as a good-hearted person, remember, most of us are growing up here in Utah, where we are not growing up with people of color. And our experience of color tends to mostly be serving a mission in Brazil, you know, where we're there as a missionary in some role of authority, in some role of, you know, the sense of importance. So I'm reaching out, I'm loving these people because that's what I'm expected to do. And so growing up in Utah, you know, I enter race in a very naive fashion. Race, you know, my experience around race is not based on relationships. It's based on um, social, you know, on, on media. It's based on, you know, ideas and whatnot. So obviously I'm a loving person. So obviously I can adopt a child of color. I'd never reject that. That's very racist. So parents suddenly have a child of color, white parents, you know, baby of color. And so the reason why I'm sharing this is that, is that when I adopted my son, Dominic, and the fascinating thing is um, I finished my work on Courageous Conversations um, basically two months before Dominic was born. So I come out of writing that book and suddenly I'm the father of, of a black son and I'm having to process that. And so when you adopt a child, they come into your home and they're entirely dependent upon you. You have to feed them. You have to change their diapers. You have to do everything that happens when you birth a baby. And you know, do a week of that and you love this child fully, you are 100% committed to them because you realize this baby does not survive unless you step in and you give them 24-hour care. And so we have Dominic for about three years and he's my child. I'm incredibly used to holding him, you know, and my brother um, has a child, has, an, has a new baby and we go over 
and I hold my nephew, who honestly looks much more like me than my own son does, but it didn't feel right. And so then it was, it was just a few months later, we adopted our daughter, who's also um, African-American and, you know, looks much more like my son than my nieces and nephews do. And it felt right. And so there's this fascinating thing where my visualization as to what I perceive as my child shifted because of experience and proximity. And so all those years of holding this baby and touching them and hearing them and loving them changed a visual conception within my mind. Mm. So when I see a black person, my first judgment that's rendered is my own children. And then all the other stuff comes in. Mm. So, so it, there has to be experience within this in order to honestly start challenging that propensity to racist judgment. And, and it cannot be through just intellectual conversation. Because when you think about how the brain works, the brain prioritizes emotional connection over intellectual connection. So yes, I can go out and read White Fragility and go, wow, what a book. Man, that mm -hmm. really impacted me. Mm -hmm. Well, frankly, it's a pretty stoic book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very guarded on the personal side. It's about the actions of white fragility rather than the emotions of white fragility. Mm, and so I can change my actions, but my emotions and my judgments persist. Mm. And I learn really well how to make sure that no one sees what's going on internally. Yeah, so I can, I can read white fragility and pat myself on the back, and then I go home to my white neighborhood where I where I don't, you know, I, I can, I don't surround myself. I don't have a, a lot of friends of color. And that's, you know, I think that's kind of what you're speaking to is that, that we can kind of immerse ourselves in these concepts, but unless we kind of take it on as a personal, as something personal, then it's going to be really hard to affect some of those biases that we yeah. carry around with us. Tracy, you were going to yeah. say something a little yeah, bit earlier. Well, I I'm very curious about, uh, as you've kind of gone down the path and you started at this place where you were collecting all these videos and you went to, you know, 3,000 different um, exemplar classrooms, if you will, because these were strong, passionate teachers. And then you moved into this other work. And I'm curious if you make connections, is what kind of overlap do you see about those who were exemplary teachers and, and the work that you've been yeah. doing in Courageous Conversations? Well, I, I, so immense overlap. I mean, you know, and, and um, so in all honesty, um, over time, it's caused me to lose a lot of faith in education. And that's a hard thing to admit. You know, because teachers are heroes. I mean, public education is an absolute must. I think during this time of COVID shutdown, watching my two kids not go to school every day, you know, I, their lives are being hammered because of this. And Zoom is great. My daughter has Zoom classroom classes every day. I'm so glad she has that. My son has to go onto Canvas and check off some boxes. But fundamentally, they are losing out in a big way. And it's very disturbing, yeah. I mean, as, as a parent. And, you know, and they say nationally, a third of kids have not logged in. They haven't shown up. 
Yeah. And so, so we're really discovering that, that, you know, first off, education is an absolute fundamental. Secondly, we've been treating schools as babysitting so parents can work. You know, and this has shown, this, this last couple months has shown that as much as anything. But so when we talk about, you know, so, so I say I, I have this lack of faith in public education. The higher the system, you know, the, the, the higher we go up in this systemic nature of school, the less faith I have in it. So I can go and I can find in any city an amazing teacher who knows how to connect with all the kids, you know, in his or her classroom. Um, in any city, I can find a school that for the most part is connecting with and serving all of its students. Um, it is near impossible to find a district that does this. Yeah. And it's completely impossible to find a state. So there are small little districts, you know, six to seven schools. It's a feeder system, you know, three or four elementaries, a couple middle schools, one high school, you know, highly connected all the way through. The superintendent knows all the students. Yeah, some of those districts are doing it. But you go much beyond that. And the further you go up into the system, the more it is about compliance. You know, and so when we're talking about how this impacts students in the classroom, so this is an example in Salt Lake School District that happened this last year. So there's a black student goes into a new school, and it's actually a great school, and I feel kind of guilty because I, you know, I, I recommended to the parents that they get their son into the school. <laughs> um, other kids, he's a black kid, he's transracial adoption, you know, transracially adopted. Another kid is using the N-word on him, which happens quite often. It's happened to my son numerous times. You know, my son will be walking through the hall and someone will come up and like, hey, I've got the impasse, right? I've got the impasse. Well, the impasse is when a black person gives their non-black friend the right to call them the N-word. What's my, how's my son going to respond? Well, no, no, you don't have it. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a 14-year-old kid. He goes, uh, yeah, and then gets really disturbed and comes home and takes it out at home. So this is common. This happens all the time. So this other boy is in this middle school here in Salt Lake. Another kid is, you know, keeps using the N-word on him. And he finally snaps one day and punches the other kid. Well, because of the way zero tolerance is written at the district level, the boy who punches gets suspended, but the boy who uses the N-word does not. Mm. So that's a systemic issue and all yeah. compliance and the paperwork is done and the boxes are checked, but whose education is now destroyed? Right. Who doesn't trust the school and the system? The person using the slur or the victim. Right. And sure, the other kid got punched, but maybe he needed to be punched. That's a really tough thing to say in today's world, right? but he was using a slur to demean another student on a regular basis and would not stop. Right. So he was bullying. So what are some little things that educators can do to address some of these issues? Um, you talk about, you know, the, the capacity of the individual educator or even a school to be able to affect some of these changes where maybe a larger organization is not able to. So what are some little things that we can take to our listeners that they could be doing yeah. tomorrow? So um, the first piece is visualization of the students in the classroom. When a student walks into that classroom, to what degree do they see themselves represented there? And so part of the challenge with this is that there's, there's you know, multicultural approaches to this, which seem quick and easy. So, um, 
you know, my son's ninth grade class is reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, it's courageous on the part of the teacher. It's one of the classics, right? So yes, it represents addressing race. Um, how does it present the black person within the story? Who's the hero? Mm -hmm. So my son is black sitting in a classroom of, you know, and his, his classroom is actually quite diverse. I mean, there's a lot of kids of color within his classroom, but he's one of the only black kids. And so the black, the main black character in To Kill a Mockingbird is the victim, is not actually a hero, requires a white person to come in and save him. Mm -hmm. I love To Kill a Mockingbird. It impacted me dramatically when I read it. But I have a personal connection. The hero character in To Kill a Mockingbird looks and sounds like me. Mm -hmm. But yet to my son, okay, so I've got to wait till the white people show up. The good, the good white people show up and take care of me. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually representative, even though it might be multicultural. Yeah, we that had a conversation. We had a conversation with Matthew Kay um, several episodes back about this very thing, where he talked about teaching the Lord of the Flies, and um, you know, seemingly that would be race neutral, but he's able to really engage his students in a conversation about how the white boys in that story. Yeah become savage yeah. and that there are lots of references to race even yeah. within what we presume to be you know a race neutral book so having those racial conversations i think around text is so important for kids yeah see and it, and and it also has to go towards intersectionality and the broad definition of diversity and so if a teacher is willing to take on race but not take on sexual orientation, willing to take on race but not take on religion, not take on politics, not take on economics, classism, all these other things, well, then the students of color in the classroom are hyper-visualized, hmm. you know, hyper-visible. Because, oh, this teacher just keeps going back to race, and are, are, are they going to ask me about it? Hmm. You know, I'm a kid going through adolescence and I'm struggling like every other kid here to fit in. And I'm really worried about the spotlight being shined on me because this teacher is so courageously talking about race. Yeah. It's all they talk about. Yeah. And so it's norming the difference. And so, I mean, the teachers who really figure this out, you know, connect with all the kids, and, you know, they are not going out of their way to make sure they give attention to the child of color in the classroom. Mm -hmm. They're going out of the way to validate the differences that every single student shows up with, you know, including the rich, white, straight, male boy from the hill whose parents might be separated. Mm. You know, who never gets to see his dad, who's a lawyer who works, you know, 120 hours a week. That's mm -hmm. the story that kid shows up with. And so, so a teacher who's going to connect with students who are different from themselves will also connect with students who are like themselves. You know, we don't have an equitable classroom if suddenly all the attention is just given to racial difference. Mm -hmm. Because now those few kids of color in the classroom have to represent an entire cultural experience, and especially because we're talking about Utah, that student of color is expected to represent a cultural experience that they might never have experienced. My kids are growing up in a white neighborhood. 
my kids actually aren't so much African-American, but they are unquestionably black. You know, and so if they have to answer, if they're expected to answer for the African-American experience, they might not actually have the background to answer for that. You know, and it's because my kids are growing up in a very unique environment. They have two white parents and, you know, we live in the avenues and there's, you know, there's some diversity around here. There's a lot of religious diversity, economic diversity, political diversity, a little bit of racial diversity. Um, and so, and so can, my, can my kids show up in a classroom and be treated for exactly who they are rather than for who the teacher is expecting them to be? Hmm. And I think that's the fundamental basis of equity is can I take a child for exactly who they show up being? Or am I in a constant judgment as to, do they live up to my standard? You know, so take grit. I, I love attacking the idea of grit. <laughs> because, Ooh, controversial, because, you know, every, educators love grit. They love grit. Right, Tracy? And why do they like love grit? grit? Yes. <laughs> why do they love grit? Because they knew they showed grit when they succeeded in school. And so they're taking their personal value and they're projecting it on their students. Well, you know, a teacher said this to me last year. Well, I wait for the students. You know, I'm, I'm, I expect the students to develop grit and persistence. And so they need to come talk to me. No, teacher, man, that's a pass. That's an excuse. That means the kids who know how the system works and connect very easily with you are showing a lot of grit because they keep coming and talking to you. Whereas the students who cannot connect with you and really struggle to understand who you are, are avoiding you. Mm. And so you're judging them because they lack grit, except you don't actually know who these kids are. You know what? You don't know what kind of grit they're showing in their life outside of your classroom. So you're using a moment where an adolescent or a teenager who's trying to figure out how the world works and might not have made a personal connection to you and has seen you call out other kids who don't participate as well as the, you know, the four or five white kids sitting on the front row who really love this class. You're calling the kids on the front row. You know, you're loving them because they have grit and persistence and they value their education and they love school and all the rest. But what about the kids who won't approach you? Whose responsibility is it? Is it the students or is it the teachers? And the teachers who are really good go to those students. And they figure out, oh, this student really recoils when I approach him in class. Okay, I got to find another way to connect to him. You know, it's, it's so, so the good teachers are, are, you know, they track how it is that they connect with each and every one of their students. And yes, they have 150 students, you know, in a middle school or high school setting. But that's not intimidating to them because really, once you've made a connection with the student, it takes a lot less time and effort to stay connected with that student. You know, and so as, as we're going through it, is, is the teacher, you know, and, and going back to what you asked, Tracy, about what can teachers do? First off, is the student visible in the classroom in a normed sense of being rather than you know an exotic or hero sense of being so i might have a multicultural classroom except for i haven't normed the experience of race and color i only highlight the heroes 
Mm. Yeah, that's, that's not exactly attainable. So how do I norm this? Am I making sure that the literature, the art, the stories that we're talking about are reflective of that student's community? You know, maybe I don't always use the history book and we focus on the history of our community. I mean, how much history can be learned by having students interview someone on their street? Well, what happens when you do that is it is absolutely culturally proficient for the student because they're talking about their world they're researching their own world, which is far more prescient and conscious in the child's mind than a history that might have happened at the other end of the country, you know, 150 years ago. It doesn't mean we don't need to teach those things. Absolutely, we must. But until a student believes that what I'm learning is reflective of my own life, then all that other stuff is just out there. It's abstracted. And so the good teachers, you know, are my students represented? Are they visible within my classroom, within the work we do? Am I personally connected to each of my students? Which means as a teacher, I'm going out of my way. I'm making myself feel uncomfortable so the students aren't the ones who have to carry that burden. You know, so you think about what is visible? What is the connection we have? But then there's another piece in this as well. You know, and it is about quality and standards and engagement and all the rest. And and unfortunately, the way that our school systems work is we are really good at grading, intensely good at grading. You know, and why are teachers so good at grading? Because they were really good at getting good grades back when they were in school. <laughs> so our modern day school system is almost a carb, you know, think back to the carbon coffee machines, you know, that you'd roll, 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 roll. <laughs> well, each new generation of teachers, in essence, feels most comfortable within a carbon copy of the school that they went through. Mm. because you know barely single digits of teachers enter the profession after being bad students almost every teacher was a good student they trust the system as it is because it worked for them why do i love ed education because i was a damn good student i'm still a good student i went back to school at 44 years old and loved it yeah so Curtis, we're almost out of time, but we, um, if, I want you to be able to talk about kind of your books that you have that are available for teachers to, to look at, because I know you've written more than just Courageous Conversations. And then if you'll talk really briefly just about um, if you could go back in a time machine and talk to your younger self, give your younger self a little bit of advice, what would you, what would you say? Um, let me start with that one first, because you know, that one's okay. more emotionally resonant. Um, life is just super messy. <laughs> Keep plugging. Just go through it and embrace failure, embrace conflict. Um, you know, learn authentically rather than learn for grades and scholarships. Um, you know, mess up. I mean, in all honesty, mess up. It's probably the number one thing I'd say to my younger self. Nice. Yeah. So. Um, because honestly, that's been one of my real struggles when, you know, when we're talking about, you know, racism and, and being inclusive and all the rest is that I really know how to work this system. I know how to appear successful and which means I carry a constant judgment against others who might not appear in the same way. Hmm. So, you know, so I have to learn how to embrace messiness and imperfection 
um, because we're all that. It's just a matter of how much we allow that to come out. Um, you know, the, the other books that I've written, uh, uh, you know, both are titled Equity 101. And so the, what the equity framework is, it's a concept that I developed. And it was actually in response to, um, to all of these schools and classrooms that we had featured. And so after working with Glenn on Courageous Conversations, continuing to do this work where we were filming in schools, um, I started a project where we went out and we found individual schools that um, had either statistically closed their achievement gaps or were showing significant enough progress that, you know, that they could say that they were closing within a few years. And so we really wanted to go out and say, in these schools, um, what are they doing? And so the equity framework derives out of that work of not going in with a concept saying, you know, we think we have the answer already, we're going to verify. It was really just analyzing the schools, listening to the teachers and leaders, talking to the students, the parents, and trying to figure out, um, you know, why are these schools successful? And so what the equity framework, you know, in essence presents is that first and foremost, it's focused on equity. And the way we define equity um, in the book is that, you know, teachers hold the responsibility to guarantee that all students succeed to an acceptable standard. And so it really puts the emphasis, the responsibility on teachers have to do the work. It's not the legislature's fault. It's not the parents' fault. It's not the community's fault. It's not the principal's fault. It's really no one's fault. It's the responsibility of the teacher in the classroom to connect with each and every student. And so an equitable school is not one where kids of color do really well and other kids don't. An equitable school is where all kids come in and believe that they are achieving to their greatest potential. And so how is it that a school goes in or a teacher goes in and, and really thinks about the progress of the student rather than the performance of the student? So I'm far less interested in terms of where a student is in relation to grade level. I'm much more interested in how is a student growing and progressing each and every year. You know, my own daughter has been perpetually a couple years behind. But there are certain classes where she is progressing at a very rapid rate. So if I use a traditional measurement, we need to be highly concerned. If I watch her and observe her, she's doing great. It's just her performance comes in conflict with the traditional way we measure student performance. So, so you know, an, an equitable teacher is one who really looks at that and thinks about each and every one of those, you know, individual students, what they show up with, who they are, and how they're progressing. And then the other thing that we did in the equity framework is that we divided it um, into leadership, culture, and practice. And so thinking through um, you know, these are schools that deliberately address issues of equity at the leadership level. How is it that, that leaders tackle this? What is the role of a leader within this? But then also really delineating between culture and practice. And so part of the challenge in all these schools we visited is we sometimes go into schools which had really figured out a lot of those classroom practices. You know, how to intervene with students, you know, how to engage them, you know, the the strategies and whatnot that are used, the, the pedagogical aspect, you know, the, the science side of it. Um, but they really couldn't talk honestly and forthrightly about race and culture and difference and all the rest. So they figured out the practice side, but not the culture. But then we were in other schools where, I mean, they were having these amazing courageous conversations and they were all pumped about it. 
but their pedagogy was weak. And so yes, students felt visible and felt recognized, except for they weren't really learning that much. And so in these schools that were achieving some degree of equity, they were very deliberate and conscious about addressing culture and practice in parallel. You know, and so constantly saying, how are we engaging those courageous conversations? How are we challenging our biases? How are we changing the culture of our school? How are we reaching out to the community? And what are the strategies we're implementing in the classroom? What is our coaching process? How are we helping student, you know, teachers lift up their practice? How are we holding students accountable and supporting them? And so it's both. It's both. You know, I Thank can you. fertilize my lawn, but not water it. My lawn will die. That's a good, that's can, a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I can water my lawn, but not fertilize it. And it's not going to be healthy. I have to do both. We so appreciate you coming and joining us this morning, Chris. We wish we had more time to continue on the conversation. So I hope you're open to us inviting you back. I feel like there's a lot that we've left on the table that we haven't been able to yeah. dig into more. And, and awesome. so with that, I know we've, we've got to move on, but uh, we wanted to thank you so much. And I, I'm going to walk away with that watering and fertilizing as, as something I'm going to bring to my own staff to, to help remind them that we've got, we've got work to do and it falls on us as education educators to make sure that our students are making that progress we need them to make. Thank you. With Thanks, the Curtis. With the connection. With progress. the connection. Progress plus connection. Love it. Hey. All right. Good both. to see you. Thank you. You as well. All right. Bye -bye. All the best. Bye-bye.